Hello, and welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sally Gentry. And today on the Gifted Life, we're talking about myths. Why someone may not say yes, guys. Yeah, Lori, are you one of those people that say, I can't donate because blank? We'll be talking to an expert shortly. who'll be able to let us know what's fact and what's fiction. And we're going to talk about how some people are very hesitant to seek help when going through their grief journey, and we're going to walk you through it. Oh, I like it. All that and more right here on The Gifted Life, and our ask of you guys is to please spread the word. We try to make it as easy as possible. Easy to find. Rate us. Subscribe to it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcast app may be. And all those cool people on social media, Sally. Yes, that's me. There you go. On Facebook, (laughs) find us at The Gifted Life Podcast. Twitter and Instagram, we're at Gifted Life Pod. At Gifted Life Pod, right? Um, So our goal is to spur those healthy conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. You're part of our team. Obviously, we have lots to get to, right, guys? Hey, and it's so good to see you all this morning. That's right. You like us, Sal? I do. We like you, too. Great. And we thank you for listening, guys. Episode 95, Hang On To Your Hats. All right, we have a guest here joining us on The Gifted Life, Dr. Jonathan Hand. Sounds familiar, huh, Yes, and we know Dr. Hand since he's co-chair on Lopez Medical Advisory Board. Nice. Yep, and of course, he's been very instrumental. Dr. Hand and I have become very close over the last few years. Because, and he still likes us? And he still likes us. Well, Imagine. let's ask him when... Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, of course, we've, we've got a lot of questions oftentimes with potential disease transmissions. We want to make sure that everyone who's receiving an organ transplant has the safest organs available and, and whatever we can do to maximize the safety, of course, is what we try to do. So we're on the phone quite often. So uh, welcome, Dr. Han, to the podcast. And, and can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks again for having me. I do want to say before I start, I think this podcast has played a really important role in transplant education for patients and that's, I guess, with donors and recipients, as well as other people in the U.S. that are involved in different aspects of the transplant process. Uh, I know many, a lot of people are, are probably thankful for this podcast. I know I am. Nice. So first off, I do have to say I am from Louisiana. I'm from Lake Charles. And then I ended up going to LSU uh, for undergrad and LSU for med school here in New Orleans. And then I was in New York and did an internal medicine residency and infectious diseases fellowship there at Mount Sinai Hospital. And during my time in the infectious diseases fellowship, I focused specifically on caring for the infectious complications of transplant recipients and other immunocompromised patients. So they get people who don't have normal immune systems, they end up dealing with different bacterial, fungal, parasitic infections that people with normal immune systems don't commonly deal with. Because there is a growing group of immunocompromised people in the U.S. and the world, that's a growing need is for a provider or a specialist to take care of those specific infections that they go through and also dealing with how can they live safely after their immune system is a little bit down and that's kind of what we're here for. Mm-hmm. So I focused on that specifically and then after I finished that training, I moved to New Orleans about three years ago 
to work at Oshner, where I was able to start transplant infectious diseases program. So I started a group of people focusing on the quality and safety revolving around infectious issues in transplant recipients. Given that we work very closely with agencies like LOPA, we know it's very important to understand the infectious issues in donors because those then in turn may affect infectious issues in recipients. Mm. I think I reached out to LOPA when I first moved down here, and since that time we've had a really great working relationship, as Joey alluded to. But my goal has been to work with you guys to optimize donors that may have infectious issues. It's interesting because I think as we may get into, these are donors that historically we may not have been able to use or or felt safe using in the past. Right. So for the public out there, we've mentioned it in previous podcasts, but on the recipient end, they are also immunocompromised because they have to take anti-rejection medication for the rest of their lives. So they don't quite have the same immune system. So it's very important on the front end to make sure that the organs are completely safe. What we then have to do in turn to make sure if they aren't at the time, how do we get them to be safe? And of course, you know, as Dr. Han alluded to, when he first got on at, at Oshner, you know, one of the first phone calls he made was to us. We met and ever since then, we've been having a, a very close relationship. So our growing relationship that we've had has been mutually beneficial because we've been able to optimize the number of donors and optimize the number of organs for transplant, some of which go to Dr. Han's recipients and others go to other recipients across the country. So it's been a huge benefit and a great relationship that we've had together. Yeah, and I'm glad that you're on. I'm glad that we have this uh, medium to talk about. I'm out in the community, so some folks are just scared to talk about death. Some folks are scared to talk about disease and don't even mention transplantation. But I saw a presentation with you and you made it so easy for me to understand. So we're glad that you're here. We want to talk about some of these like hepatitis that comes up a lot. What if I have hepatitis? Would I receive an organ from someone who had hepatitis? How does that work? So can you give us a, a general overview? Yeah, sure. So I think I'm going to say this now because, and I'll say it again later because I do think it's worth repeating. It's really important to educate our organ transplant candidates that their biggest risk overall is of not getting a transplant and that infection risk is very low and that really has to be compared to uh, or within context of the risk of spending more time on a wait list. So I think that's an important, before Mm -hmm. we start talking about sort of infections and, and donors, I think it's really first important to talk about the risk of staying on the wait list and even staying on dialysis waiting for a kidney transplant, any type of wait list, you have an increased mortality when you're on that wait list. So any type of risk that you're thinking about, it's important to put that risk in context of what if you don't get a transplant. And Dr. Han, to be clear, when you said increased mortality rate, um, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a very good question. So anytime someone is on a waiting list for a transplant, that means that they have end stage or the organ is not functioning, liver disease, heart disease, lung disease, or kidney disease. And so the longer someone is living with that organ not being functional or at its end stage, so the longer they're on the wait list, the more likely they are to have complications and therefore end up dying from that underlying end organ disease. So to answer your question specifically about 
hepatitis. So we'll focus on hepatitis C. I think that's probably the biggest issue. There's hepatitis A, which is more of an acute hepatitis, viral hepatitis. Hepatitis B, which is a chronic hepatitis. Uh, We do use organs from patients with hepatitis B. But more recently, hepatitis C has been a bigger question. It sounds like in the community and definitely in the candidates, recipients, and transplant centers in the country. So hepatitis C can be transmitted through blood or blood products. And so a big change has occurred over the past five years. We are in a new era now of hepatitis C treatment. So, and and this has been a really quick change over these past few years. So we've gone from hepatitis C being a really difficult disease to treat. There were very toxic medications historically used, and these patients didn't do well with that therapy. Now we have many new hepatitis C cures. So these aren't just long-term suppressive therapies. These are actual cures. And patients can take a combination of these drugs. They're, They're referred to in the medical field as DAAs or direct acting antivirals. And so patients can take these pill medications. Typically, it ranges from about 8 to 24 weeks with very high cure rates, typically over 90%. And and these drugs are very, very well tolerated. So in the past, this type of uh, cure was kind of unimaginable. So you bring that back to the donor side. So after a recipient receives a hepatitis C positive organ, then that recipient can then be actually cured with these new effective and very well-tolerated medications. And so I think it's important we talk about hepatitis C positive. I think it's important to clarify what that means because there are two types of donors that will sometimes be lumped into that hepatitis C positive category. So there are those patients who have been exposed in the past and show evidence of exposure without actual detectable level of virus in their blood. So these are people who were previously cured or their body maybe cleared the virus itself. And in these types of patients, the transmissibility is extremely low. We can compare those patients who've been exposed and cleared to those who actually have detectable virus in their blood or have active hepatitis C infection. These patients have nearly 100% chance of transmitting to uh, hepatitis C to the recipient. And so we end up testing all these recipients routinely after they get an organ from a, a hepatitis C positive donor, and we monitor them closely to see if there is any transmission of virus. And if there is, then we will treat the organ recipient with these new drugs. And so many programs in the United States are safely utilizing uh, the gift of life from these donors who have had active hepatitis C in the past or have active hepatitis C or have had hep C in the past and cleared it. Which is a, obviously it's a change from in the past where, you know, we had transplanted a hepatitis C positive organ into a hepatitis C positive recipient because we didn't have that antiviral, the DAAs that he talked about. We've had a podcast, a couple podcasts in the past where we did touch on HIV donation a little bit. And now, as you know, doc, we've here at LOPA in Louisiana, become involved with the HOPE Act, which brings me to a similar infection in HIV, another viral infection, where we've talked in the past about the HOPE Act, HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, that has been enacted a few years ago that has now made it legal again, which it wasn't for years, but legal now again to be able to transplant HIV-positive donor organs into HIV-positive recipients. At this time, I know he mentioned the hepatitis C, that there is a cure for hepatitis C, uh, of course, for HIV, we don't have that exact cure, but we do have the medicines to keep it kind of at bay. Can you talk a little bit about the HOPE Act and a little bit about how the impact that now being able to donate HIV positive to HIV positive has had on our community? 
So I think it's important to put this in context. HIV-positive patients do have similar lifespans compared to HIV-uninfected patients now. Over the past 30, 40 years, there's been a lot of scientific progress made in this area. We have now a lot of well-tolerated suppressing medications. They're not curative as you mentioned, but that ends up meaning that we have a lot more patients with HIV who are living longer, and those patients need life-saving organ transplants as well. Similarly, HIV-positive patients may now also be donors. So as you alluded to, in 2013, President Obama signed the HOPE Act, the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, and this act authorized clinical research and revised rules about organ donation and transplantation between HIV-positive individuals. So now at many centers across the country, like Oshner, as well as agencies like LOPA, are participating in these protocols for HIV positive to HIV positive organ donation. So this has been led in most part by Dr. Duran and Dr. Sayev out of Johns Hopkins, and we're really learning more about HIV positive to HIV positive transplantation as more and more centers do become involved and more and more procurement agencies like LOPA are more involved with this process. Recently, actually, Dr. Duran's group published that once the confirmatory tests were done on these donors, so these are donors who were initially screened to be HIV positive, and once that confirmatory testing was done, actually around half of them were not truly positive tests. So they were confirmed to be ultimately negative and used and given to HIV-positive patients. So this is a really great move for patients. HIV-positive patients can now be organ donors and gives HIV-positive recipients more access to these types of organs. Uh, Dr. Hand, I do have a question for you about the opioid problems that we're having today. It's uh, one of the questions we get is how can someone who overdoses, how can they still be a candidate for donation? First, you know, I think these drugs are, there's probably certain amount of these drugs still in the donor system, but this is going to decrease over time while they're, they're hospitalized. And this doesn't always affect the actual functionality of the organ. You have to also understand that transplant teams are doing their best to ensure that organs from these donors are adequately functioning. So they're doing a whole host of tests to ensure that they're an appropriate organ functionally to be used by a recipient. Overall, it does seem to have little to do with how the recipients of these organs actually do. They seem to do just as well as recipients who did not receive these types of organs. It's interesting that you bring this up. There was a group from, I think it was Cedars-Sinai in California that, that had just presented their work at an international conference, the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplant, in a meeting in Nice, and I saw a poster there where they actually looked at, was there a difference in recipient outcomes in heart transplants from donors that that overdose versus those that didn't, and they, they didn't really find any significant differences in how mm. those recipients did or in the function of the actual uh, organ. Right, Sally. So, of course, uh, you know, and I didn't touch on it earlier, and I probably should have, you know, among those tests that we do to make sure that every organ is safe uh, for transplant are tests for hepatitis C. We do an antibody and an antigen test and then hepatitis B, and then HIV, and all of these viral infections that can potentially be transmitted. But we also do what's called nucleic acid testing. We call that for short. 
And what those tests do is they can narrow down the time frames of which, you know, a donor, potential mm -hmm. donor been infected down to seven days. And you talked about the opioids and people may ingest opioids. They may snort or inhale opioids. And those really don't increase their risk of obtaining HIV or any of those mm -hmm. viruses that we're talking about. It's really only the ones that are injecting the opioid and then overdose from an, an okay. injected opioid overdose. So that's where they're considered PHS increase risk for the infectious disease. So Dr. Han, what do you guys do in these situations with PHS increased risk? I don't know if you guys have discussed PHS increased risk in the past or what that means, but in 2013, public health service guideline was created and these were a set of risk factors that were associated with HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. This is a list of about 12 different behavioral risk factors related to donors that help us better risk stratify, or at least attempt to help us better risk stratify certain donors. At most institutions, when a candidate is going through the transplant evaluation process, they discuss with their transplant providers these specific types of donors and whether or not they're willing to receive an organ from one of these specific types of donors. I think it is important to highlight, you know, you mentioned that LOPA tests all these patients for HIV, Hep B, Hep C, and using nucleic acid testing, we don't miss a ton. And we can miss within that window period or eclipse period, as Joey was alluding to earlier. But I think it's important to think about risk in context, as I mentioned earlier, because again, the biggest risk is a patient not getting an organ transplant. And so the risk of overall transmission risk of these viruses is about 0.1% or about one in a thousand. Wow. And so the risk of getting infected with HIV or hep C from an increased risk organ donor is about 0.4 out of 100 people. So when we compare that to the risk of dying during your lifetime from a traffic accident, that's 0.9 out of 100 people. So that's more than double there. Mm -hmm. When you compare this, the risk of dying in the next year, if you're waiting on a kidney transplant, that's 9 out of 100 people versus that 0.4 out of 100 people for PHS increased risk. And then really, what's really frightening is your risk of dying in the next three months from liver disease. If your MELD is between 20 and 29, it's about 20 out of 100 people. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to keep all of these numbers in context. And I think it's also very interesting to know that your risk of getting hepatitis C actually staying on hemodialysis, which is a documented risk for hep C, is the same as getting infected by an increased risk donor. And so we really try to work with educating patients and providers, physicians involved in this, coordinators, that we really want to make sure that the risk is all in context. The risk of staying on the wait list is real. And a lot of times I don't know if we do as good a job as we can of really putting this all in, in context and helping people to see the big picture. I am encouraged that all this has been figured out in order to make life happen more. Like, thank goodness, you know, you went into that line of work and others do the same. Um, in our presentations when we're out in the community, we get odd questions. Sometimes I have to text Joey and say, hey, I, I got this clinical question. Can you help me out? But my overall saying is you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe we can't recover that today for, for this reason or another, but you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that kind of sounds like you're, you guys are, are pushing the envelope, working together to figure out how to do more with what we have. So that's that's encouraging. It sure is, uh, especially having someone like Dr. Han to lean on so that we can be more diligent and transplant 
plant more organs and save more lives. A lot of our colleagues, a lot of my colleagues, friends of mine in, in other states do the same. You know, they lean on their infectious disease positions. It pushes the envelope further than we did in years past. And certainly that is one of, if not the most important and biggest aspect of saving the amount of lives that we're saving now versus 10 and 20 years ago. Well, Doc, you certainly touched upon a lot of important topics that we often get from the community and, and of course, that directly or indirectly even come to some of the clinicians like myself that I usually have to lean on you to help answer. And, you know, we talked a lot about the risk and understanding the risk that by not getting a transplant, you know, and how much that outweighs the minuscule risk that we're talking about for potential infectious diseases. And then compounding or adding upon that, that we're seeing cures, these you know really bad viruses that we've had in the past, like hepatitis C, we get oftentimes that, man, I, I really can't donate or I shouldn't donate and I get it often because I have this or that. And it really lends upon itself to not rule yourself out. And the more medical breakthroughs that take place, the less likely any disease processes really impact the donation and transplantation process. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's important that no one rules themselves out. Just as you mentioned, let's think five years ago, we did not have many good hepatitis C cures, and now we do. Let's think back six years ago, we were not taking HIV positive organs, and now we are. I think it's really important, like you said, all of the different medical progress that is currently going on in the field of transplantation, we really are able to utilize many many different types of donors that patients and even some physicians and other providers may not feel like we are able to use. So it's important everybody that can should be signing up to be a donor. Thank you so much, Doc, for all the information. You were great. And of course, if you're out there, if you're a patient waiting on an organ and you've got any more concerns or questions about disease transmission, please talk to your transplant coordinators or your transplant professionals. They will talk to Dr. Han and other infectious disease physicians for you and make sure you understand the risk. Also, you can always send us a question and that email address is info at thegiftedlife.org. Right. It's all about learning. I learned a lot today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jonathan Hand, a transplant infectious disease specialist at Oshner. Thanks a lot, Doc. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. on The Gifted Life. It's all about learning new things, spurring those healthy conversations. And we always get a little bit from Sally, right? Sally, what you got for us today? I'll tell you what, Joey, we have something kind of interesting here. I had a co-worker that said, you know, I have a family that really could use some grief counseling. But he said, no, 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 no. I I don't want to go through all that because situation just make it worse. And besides, my wife and I don't talk about it. We don't discuss it with the kids. And I'm thinking, first of all, um, I'm not sure how your situation could be any more in dire straits. First of all, you've lost someone you love very much. But now you're not even communicating with your family about what these thoughts and feelings are for you. 
you know, my suggestion to the co-worker was just talk to him very gently and emphasize the importance of communicating how you're thinking about things. You don't have to go into all the emotional background because, well, as we know, men don't usually like to go there. So, you know, maybe just spend a little bit of time just letting them know how important it is just to take a few minutes out of the day and maybe just discuss it a little bit more with your family. It's also important that people know they can take a break from grieving. I know that some folks think that if they're not, maybe they're not thinking of their loved one the way that they should. But just a few minutes out of the day where someone is just, you're just kind to yourself and you remember some of those really good moments that you had and to be grateful for that time that you had with your loved one. Wrapping all this up is to say that sometimes reaching out to others that care about you, but they're not going to share all your information that you want to talk about with them could be very, very helpful to get you through some of the very stressful and and difficult times of the grieving process. It's healing once you start you know, you find Absolutely. that person and you have those conversations. Yep, that's so, right. I like it. Encouragement, inspiration. Right, Joe? Yep. Are you going to tell us about your feelings? <laughs> that's a I'll big no here on The Gifted Life. All right, more to come, guys. <laughs> Honoring a hero here on The Gifted Life. Today's hero, Cooper Gibson. And we hear from Cooper's family. I had my son, Cooper, on May the 14th, 2018. He passed away at 16 days old on May 30th. That morning he passed away. I got a call letting me know that my son had a match for someone that needs a heart valve, and I immediately said yes to donating it. The idea that my son saved someone or even someone else's child when he was only 16 days old, I feel like that's amazing. And now we pause and say thank you to Cooper for the gift of life. question and answer segment today. My physician told me that I can't be a donor because of my illness. Should I take myself off the donor registry? Well, as Dr. Han so eloquently put it earlier, right. you know, that no, uh, the quick answer. And then, of course, the elaborated part is that, look, we've got medical breakthroughs every, every day, day. Whoa, yeah. happening in, in donation and transplant. Organs that we couldn't transplant five, whatever, years ago, we're transplanting today, saving more lives. So don't ever take yourself off because that breakthrough for that particular disease might just happen tomorrow. Yeah. It's amazing. Don't rule yourself out. You've said that many a time yep. here. on the podcast. Great question, guys. Thanks. And we do want to hear from you. So if you would, please give us a call at 504-648-3477. We may even play your message on the podcast or email us at info at thegiftedlife.org. That'll do it for this episode of The Gifted Life. Learned a lot. Yeah, we want to thank Dr. Uh, Jonathan Hand for coming on and sharing all the knowledge that he's got with us and with our audience about disease transmission and the impact that it has on organ donation and transplantation. And certainly, more importantly, understand the risks that are there, but keep them in a certain context. I like the way he put it. You've got to always understand what the risk is of a certain disease process and that impact versus not getting a transplanted. So that's really important. And we want to thank him for coming on and, and talking about 
that, as well as being such a good partner with Lopa and helping us to save more lives because certainly over the last three years, with his help, we've been able to pursue certain organ transplants that we wouldn't have before without his knowledge. And with all this information, we just want to remind everybody, please do not rule yourself out. All right, let's make life happen. We can do it together. Maybe we inspired you to go out and say yes to donation if you hadn't already. Registerme.org is where you go. And then we want to ask you to go out and do something that you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Thanks for listening. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sally Gentry. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 